Hello, this is Sam Maxwell of Emetsian Podcast, and the following is a conversation had by myself and Greg Prince on my Bedford and Sullivan podcast regarding the Mets and the NL legacy. Enjoy. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And there's no better way to research than to, to try to put yourself into the, the mindset of what it was like to be a fan back then. And we can kind of do that in many ways with what is going on right now. There are echoes of the, the, uh, the way the Brooklyn Dodgers used to lose, the way the New York Giants sometimes used to lose uh, after being perennial winners. And, and to help me kind of break down that, the feeling of what the fan goes through, uh, a man who knows uh, it arguably better than anybody else out there I know, and that is Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flush. And Greg, thank you for joining me on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. I hope your family is safe and healthy right now. Oh, we're doing fine, Sam. Thank you. Same to you. Much appreciated. And, and it's the first time, uh, I, I believe, we're really like getting into the, the nitty-gritty since the 2020 season has started. Uh, it's a new baseball season, you know, even though I always talk about how it's more than baseball that of the story that we're trying to tell when it comes to Brooklyn and the Dodgers. Uh, but it, it, it's what it's the glue that keeps everything uh, together. And it, it seems to me when it comes to this specific team, uh, Jeff Wilpon thinks that everything can be put together with Elmer's glue. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to crash and burn. I'll start for you from the historical context. What, what, what do you think it is that from generation to generation, different people, whether, uh, you know, different organizations, different uh, mindsets being, you know, running this, why is it that you keep seeing the same echoes that, that, that go, that run rampant through NL New York history? Well, first off, I have to refute the idea that Jeff Wilpon is trying to keep everything together with Elmer's glue because Elmer's is a name brand, and I would think that the Wilpons probably go more for a store brand, private label uh, type of glue, save, save a few cents. So, go to the 99 uh, cents store. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, the glue may not stick after a while, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a dollar. What do you want? Anyway, um, you know, I, I think to a certain degree, especially when things aren't going particularly well, and at this specific juncture in in Mets time, things are not going well. Uh, so you tend to kind of dive or perhaps wallow a bit in the, into that uh, sense of gosh, this uh, this keeps happening. Uh, and you can't argue to a certain degree that it doesn't keep happening when you realize that last night, which I think is the cloud uh, you and I and so many Mets fans are uh, wandering around under today, uh, the Mets lost 11-10 to 10 after uh, having led by a lot of runs uh, late in the game. And, you know, you don't have to go into the record books very far to find another instance of not not only a game similar, a game pretty much exactly <laughs> the same. It was only last September 
that the Mets had a 10-4 lead in the ninth inning and lost 11 to 10. Uh, that was within the span of 33 games. We're having the exact same, or pretty much the exact same affair last night. It was 10 to 5, and it was the eighth inning. But uh, it was an 11 to 10 final. Uh, that's not, you know, that's that's not a two to one or five to four type of score. You figure, oh, that happens once a generation. It happens, you know, once a month in baseball terms. <laughs> uh, or you know, we 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 can you know say that for, to uh, defeat our sense of uh, deja vu all over again. I suppose. Uh, you know, if if we were talking in another year. We were talking in you know, August of 2015 instead of August of 2020, or for that matter, September of 2016, or even a couple of weeks after that 11-10 loss last September. Uh, we'd probably have a different outlook. We'd be talking about, wow, how, how is it that the, that the Mets uh, are, are picking up on all the great momentum that we, we saw uh, in 1951 for the Giants, or you know, in 1941 for the Dodgers, and we'd, we'd be giddy about how we're part of this great tradition of of coming from behind and surprising people, and we we all feel good about it. And then uh, you know, unfortunately, that's not what we have right now. So we 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 tend, I think, to lean on the idea of geez, this keeps happening to us. You know, what, what do we do wrong? Uh, you know, we, we, we try to live a good life. But, um, you know, it, it's because, you know, El- Elmers or otherwise, baseball is so much the glue of, of how we go about our lives as, you know, committed baseball fans, in this case commit, committed or, as they say, ought to be committed, uh, fans of uh, a New York team <laughs> in the National League. We, we we do tend to feel that uh, you know that this is part of who we are, uh, and you know if we if we were five and three instead of three and five, if we were, uh, we could potentially be seven and one, as opposed to three and five. We'd be saying, wow, you know this this is just this is just like that year where the Dodgers got off to that great start and went on to win their first World Series, that sort of thing. So um, you know it comes around, it goes around, and. You know, a week ago, we were just happy to have anything around in terms of baseball. And now it feels like one of the longest seasons in history, even though we're eight games into a, a season that is scheduled to last 60 games. If we're lucky, it will last 60 games. Uh, and then based on the last three nights in particular, it feels like they are trying to cram 162 games of, I guess I would call it, inaction into 60 games worth <laughs> of action. And I, if I could just uh, put, a, put a button on this thought, uh, was, was something I looked up last night, confirmed this morning, uh, once Baseball Reference had its uh, its updated statistics through last night. You know, sometimes you watch a game and you say, I feel I've seen this before, or something like the 11-10 score, and in fact, you have seen it before. And sometimes you watch a game and you say, I don't think I've ever seen exactly what I'm seeing before. Well, this week, these last three games, the two games at City Field where the Mets lost to the Red Sox, and last night's game is somewhere near Atlanta where they lost uh, to the Braves, each took more than three and a half hours, and each went 
you know, regulation, which even in 2020, unless it's in a doubleheader, is nine innings. Do you know? I didn't know it. I had to look it up because I had the feeling it, it had never happened before. This is the first time in 59 years of Mets baseball that the Mets have lost three consecutive nine-inning games that took more than three hours, excuse me, three and a half hours to play. So uh, it was not only interminable, it was intolerable in a way that, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't need extra innings and it had nothing to do with the West Coast and sitting up till two in the morning. It was just long, flabby baseball the way long, flabby baseball is played today and kind of spooky because there's nobody in the stands and, you know, one pitcher after another not, not getting you out of uh, the late innings and leaving the bases loaded and not scoring nearly enough and, and all those things that are, are terrible in one game. I and mean, we just got them in three games and we got them all in a row. So it's it's no wonder we're we're, we're sort of searching around in our in our minds, uh, not only through Met history but through New York National League baseball history, and saying, "Oh my God!" Like on one hand, it feels like it keeps happening, and on the other hand, well, there's always something new, isn't there? For what you just told me, it's certainly nuanced as to who's to blame for that being you know becoming a record right now. Uh, but and we can go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but I segue to Rob Manfred this way, you know, because obviously one of the things Manfred has been known to try to be doing is to, to try to shorten games. And here you have uh, in the middle of all the COVID, uh, the Mets doing what you just uh, uttered. So before we get into the fact that, you know, they, they, the way they've been losing, my question for you, let's go into the, the COVID question. Do you even think they're going to, to be uh, uh, finishing the season. And at this point, when you're watching the Mets, do you even want them to finish the season? Well, I mean, it's so be, you know, I'm about to use the phrase beyond the pale, but I think we have a lot of, a lot of pales lined up on this speech. Uh, you know, it, to me, it was beyond the pale that they were going to try to play baseball in 2020 based on what we knew about COVID pandemic. And, you know, and if you if you want to say it's to baseball's credit that they kind of put their head down and decided we're we're going to try to figure this out, and if you want to want to say that's a good thing, well, it is a good thing. Uh, if what you really wanted out of life was to watch the Mets at seven ten every night, and under normal circumstances, if you can remember normal circumstances, of course that's what we wanted. But you know, with so many factors playing in, it was such an iffy chance to begin with but then when you you get to the point where they got to to say okay we're going to have a season it's going to be shorter we're going to take these precautions we're going to make these allowances and we're going to play 60 games here's a schedule and then there's going to be a postseason and then there's going to be a champion you as a sports fan kind of take that as gospel say okay you know it ain't ideal but bring it on and now we're barely a week into the season and the whole thing is in jeopardy. You know, we, we've seen what's happened to the Marlins with, with more than half of the team testing positive for COVID-19. I just saw on Twitter about five minutes before coming on with you that the Cardinals had a couple more positive tests. They had been postponed in Milwaukee last night. It's hard to see them playing today. 
uh, baseball, meaning Manfred, whoever, however you, you, you want to personify baseball, has said, look, the uh, players, uh, you know, putting the onus on them, <laughs> have got to get their act together, got to follow protocols. Uh, authorities within have to be responsible for making sure protocols are adhered to uh, because this isn't just, you know, this isn't Jeff Kent washing his truck or whatever, you know, or you know, riding around on a dirt bike or whatever it was that, that uh, put him on the disabled list years ago. Uh, it's, it's not some, like, individual player taking a, a weird chance and then making up a story about it. That's what I'm saying. Uh, this is a thing going around <laughs> and the thing with, with grave consequences. And baseball is a game where even though it is not a contact sport per se, it's a lot of contact. It's a lot of contact between pitches and sitting on the bench and sitting in the clubhouse and sitting on buses and planes. And that's, you know, a dicey enough road to navigate as it is. So you you put it all together. You you look at what you've seen from from various teams. You see postponements, not not for rain, but for this, uh, and not just one postponement because a storm is passing through, but a a storm that does not leave, so to speak. Uh, you know how how can you not consider the fact that a season that just began on July 24th, we're here on August 1st, and we're wondering can they get to September 27th, and you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet they don't, but I wouldn't bet they would either. And this is a bizarre place to be. It very much is. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure how it's going to play out, but the way I've been, it, it, and it's weird. And uh, you know, I always get the pronunciation of this word wrong. Uh, Massacre. I think I got it right this time, uh, but. But it seems weird to me that, like, even throughout this frustration, even with, with, you know, the fact that the Mets lost the way they have so quickly, so fast, um, I'm still thankful that I was watching baseball. Still, like, like while watching baseball, you know, it, 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 we've never been in a situation where it was so precarious, where you really, you know, you – there's there's a lot of times where you're sitting there, you know you're going to die, and you're sitting there in the upper deck, and you're just looking at baseball and going, "This is this is what I love about this is this is my religion. This is what I love about life, and I, I love watching baseball." And this entire thing has given you has given us so so much more of a of of seriousness of how, of, of really owning and loving that game that you're watching because it's, it's, it's very, life is very precarious and, and something like this can really remind you that these are very special things that humans have made up that we really appreciate about life. And we want to keep watching that, that green field in front of us. Or the, the green field that is on the television in front of us uh, this year. Yeah, it's it's listen, exactly. for all the cynicism one can attach to the way Major League Baseball has, has gone about this, it's nice to have baseball, active baseball in our lives again. And uh, as much as I enjoy a good Mets classic on SNY, as much as I've enjoyed watching and rewatching the 1969 World Series and the 1986 World Series and 
the 2000 National League Division Series, uh, which which they were kind enough to, to take out of the archives. You, know, you, you want something that tells you the story continues. Uh, this is one skewed chapter, to be sure, but it is a continuation. Uh, I'm, I'm not asking anybody to get sick for it or to die for it, and I have fervently hope that you know, there are no victims <laughs> from this, which is such a bizarre thing to say about a baseball game or a baseball season. But I tell you, Sam, last night around 7 o'clock, uh, the temperature had cooled off in our kitchen, uh, where it's always in summer a lot hotter than it is outside, just the way the ventilation seems to work here. And I decided I was going to cook dinner for, for me and my wife, uh, which she has discouraged me from doing when it's particularly hot because it's going to make things hotter. So it was like, oh, you know what? It's 7 o'clock. I can put WCBS on in here, listen to Howie and Wayne, set the stage, and I can put the game on the living room on SNY with Gary, Keith, and Ron, all of them at City Field, even though the Mets are in Atlanta. And if Howie and Wayne tell me a home run has been hit, I can dash into the living room to see what it looked like, get back to my cooking. And then ultimately, once I'm done, uh, bring out the food and uh, watch the rest of the game. And, you know, that's what to me is a perfect Friday night in July, uh, something we haven't had. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've replicated it with Mets classics and whatever else. And, you know, whatever else one one watches or chooses to do to take one's mind off reality. But this this is special to us. This is, you know, our way of life. Uh, having baseball on a Friday night in July, starting a new series, and, you know, getting 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 your hopes up, getting your 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 disdain up for the uh for whoever the opponent happens to be. Uh in this case it's easy because it's the Braves. But um it was nice to have that feeling. I probably felt it the most last night uh, more than I had since, you know, that the little euphoria of opening day and probably up until Edwin Diaz delivered the pitch that Marcelo Zuna drove out of City Field last Saturday because it's so rare to have a Saturday afternoon game uh, at City Field. And since then, it just kind of felt like a slog. Even when they were at Fenway Park winning, it felt kind of like a slog because, you know, when, when was the last time, if ever, you saw Fenway Park with no fans and the baseball game going on? I, I looked behind home plate during that series, and, you know, to, to their credit, they didn't stick a bunch of cardboard cutouts there, but it was like, I don't think I really realized that the seats were red there. I mean, I knew they were red, but they're never, you never see anybody out of them at Fenway Park. <laughs> so it just felt ridiculously empty. It felt like somebody had rented out the ballpark for a corporate softball game or something. All of these games, <laughs> for the most part, have been kind of, like I used the word before, flabby. They, they don't feel like major league games to begin with. So you, you take out the fans and you, you just take out that, that hum, no, no matter what they try to pipe in, and it doesn't feel like what you waited for. And, you know, you try to say, well, I understand we can't have everything the way we want it to be in really any phase of life right now uh, in, in ways that uh, are more crucial than watching a ball game. But, you know, Friday night, ball game, 
bacon dinner, sitting down, eating dinner, watching it. It's a good feeling. And it was, you know, again, until it went on far too long to a uh, a result uh, far too, too detrimental to our happiness, uh, it was a good thing. But it's, you know, God, it, it just feels like uh, the effort to put all of that together uh, and to do it again on Saturday night from, from a baseball, everybody staying in one piece, everybody not infecting one another way, uh, just, you know, feels like a monumental effort. And uh, this is a, again, I think the third time I've said it, a bizarre way to go through a baseball season, however truncated a baseball season it may be. You know, I always like to keep it as much in the context of 1937 and 1957 as possible. Uh, However, I think I can talk about last night and do so in the context of, uh, spoiler alert, um, something that that, uh, is coming up on Monday when I'm going to have Frank Thomas and Carl Erskine being the pitcher versus hitter on the podcast. That's going to be a lot of fun. But but in the context of what pitching – and hitting was like then versus what pitching and hitting was like now. Uh, and breaking down somewhat what we saw last night. Or I, I was listening to it the entire time. Well, I wasn't actually listening, but I was – anyway, I was driving. So, But <laughs> what, what's crazy about a game like last night, Greg, is that you finally get, like, people that you've been, you've been wanting to come through some – some veterans, the, the cliches that that are around the Jeff Wilpon type of team, the Robinson Canoes, the Ioannis Cespedes, people that you know you you want to see, you're rooting for, but have a lot of ire from some Mets fans as to whether or not they're going to be performing at this latter stage of their career. Uh, we finally get a game like that, and yet the pitching – like, like, you know, they, they always talk when the, when the pitching is going strong, the hitting isn't. And when the hitting is going strong, the pitching isn't. Um, but, but something like that, like it seems as if something that, that Frank and Carl and I were talking about is, is that the game calling isn't there anymore. And, and a lot of people on Twitter as well, we've been talking about it, that there just doesn't seem to be the art of pitching. When you talk about guys like Johan Santana and Tom Seaver, and R.A. Dickey, even to an extent, when he was here. The baseball acumen seems to be losing a little bit. And, and then you keep seeing the same – obviously, you keep seeing the same stories where, uh, in terms of all these ex-players, that, that the, the way Jeff is running the team. But, you know, specifically when it comes to a game like last night, what about modern baseball seems to have a disconnect from – the game that we're used to. Well, no, yeah, I think you get when when baseball is going well, and some of that means when your team is winning, uh, you don't really notice those things because you're you're just happy with the results. Uh, conversely, no matter what happens this year, it's all going to feel magnified in terms of what isn't the way we idealize it because this is not ideal. I mean, listen, certainly when Jacob deGrom pitches, at least when he is on the mound and umpires aren't squeezing him, uh, everything is as good as it ever was. <laughs> you know, Seaver, <clears throat> Santana, Jacob DeGrom is one to, you know, to whoever. mention that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, somebody, you know, 
Andres Jimenez comes in, triples, gets his first base hit. Okay, he got picked off, but that's what a rookie does. Made a great leaping catch last night. You know, you appreciate those things. So within the context of of this nonsense, uh, you know, you have uh, what, what someone called green shoots in the field. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned veteran players. Uh, you know, listen, no, no, nobody seems terribly excited. It's two years in that Robinson Cano is a New York Met, but you know, I'm, I'm fascinated watching him when he's in a groove. But when, when we've had those sorts of veterans join the Mets who are undoubtedly past their prime, who you no doubt want to, don't want to get stuck with those contracts, yet you watch them in their elements when they're locked in and there's something incredibly professional about them and incredibly intelligent about them. And just watching Cano walk in at the plate versus whoever's the pitcher when he's going well. It's like I, I had the same feeling about Gary Sheffield more than 10 years ago. It was just I see what all the fuss is about. It's, it's the way I felt watching Santana when he came over. It's the way I felt watching Pedro Martinez when he came over. Even Tom Glavin, who I'm not a huge fan of having seen on the Mets, uh, you, you get what made these guys Hall of Famers or eventual Hall of Famers or ought to be Hall of Famers. So, again, on a, the, the magic may not be there the way it was when they were younger, and ultimately you're probably better off not having made a trade for Robinson Cano, quite frankly. But if in the short term it gives you something, great. And you, and you you try to ride that out, but I, I think on a a larger scale to your question, I get the feeling that baseball has just lowered its standards. You know, well he doesn't have to go nine innings. You know, go eight innings, go seven innings, go six innings. Let's hope he can get five innings. You know what? Why don't we use an opener? <laughs> we'll we'll, right, we'll right. get you know try to get <laughs> three Stella, outs in the Stella first inning. We'll have four we'll, last night, right? Yeah. Well, and we'll quote have a bullpen game, that sort of thing. Uh, the idea, you know, again, I, I don't quite know how to discern the shift. Uh, you know, do we put the onus on the second baseman to to play where the second baseman should be playing, or do we bring the third baseman over to also play second base and? Does the batter say, gosh, that's going to be tough to, for me to hit through the shift? Or, hey, you know what, I'm going to beat the shift by batting the other way. And it, it just seems, you know, there, there are – these are things being done in the name of scoring runs, Frank preventing did. runs. But <laughs> Frank keeps saying, too. He's like, I'm going to put it down the third base line if you're shifting me that way. I know I'm a pole hitter, yeah. but I'm going to put it down the third base line. I believe Matt Adams did that last night. I wasn't I wasn't uh, paying close attention at that moment, but I think they, I heard an announcer say something to that effect that he basically beat the shift. So it, it just I, again I'm, I'm sure it's all done in the name of trying to win baseball games, and I'm sure there is there is data to support it. And if if you watch uh, footage from say 1981, and I say that specifically because I know that they're they're a uh, very thoughtful person once sent me a disc full, I think it's on YouTube now, of, uh, of Met highlights 
that he had recorded on his VCR when he was a teenager uh, and eventually transferred uh, to digital media. And, and, and I would watch those highlights a few years ago, and I'd be amazed at how many balls just, you know, went up the middle <laughs> that just, you know, eluded infielders because there wasn't the same strategy or tactics, whichever you would call it, dedicated to keeping balls from going through the infield, as, as, as basic as that sounds. It was like, well, the shortstop's here, the second baseman's here, well, I'll just hit the ball over here. Uh, so you, you can't blame teams for wanting to cut down runs, but it, it just seems to kind of lessen everything about the game as you, as you go along. And I'm not, I'm not picking on shifts per se, but it, it just seems like what we, we're kind of, I don't know, it, it just feels like a, a lesser game when you watch it, when you, when you take the long view. I think when you're, Things are going well, and you're excited, and something great happens. You're not thinking about it. You're thinking, this is great. You're not saying, wow, how come there are only strikeouts or home runs? You just, if, if they're going your way, you're just happy that you have a, your, your pitcher has struck out a lot of batters, and uh, your team has hit a lot of home runs. But, you know, I recall when a pitcher would, say, strike out nine, usually in, say, nine innings to get, to get that far. You'd say, wow, that was really impressive. They're like you get nine strikeouts in the game, and it's just kind of business as usual. And it's not because, oh, my God, we're living in an age where pitchers have just become these monsters. It's like, no, because batters strike out a lot more. And I, I don't want to, you know, take take away from the accomplishments of a pitcher, but it just, it just feels like, you know, there's, there's – I don't want to say nothing special. If there was nothing special about it, we, we wouldn't be still glued to it. We would have just walked away from it. But uh, it, it, it just feels like the standards have been lowered, that the players aren't expected to be really good. It's like if we get enough adequate players and we shuttle them in and out, I mean, even before this year with the temporary 30-man roster, you think about how the Mets and other teams use their bullpens, not, not just in-game, but just the way that there was just a certain portion of the bullpen was devoted or composed of guys who were not going to be here tomorrow by design. Where it's like, okay, well, you know, we'll use uh, Walker Lockett and then we'll send Walker Lockett down to bring up Corey Oswald and then we'll send Corey Oswald down to bring up Jake Brame and, you know, just one name after another. Not with the idea of, you know, we're, we're going to... You know, expect the starter to go seven innings and maybe get or eight innings and maybe get, you know, Edwin Diaz uh, or Seth Lugo to finish the game. But it's like we just got to somehow throw enough quantity at this and hope it works out. And tomorrow we'll just, you know, send three guys down and bring up three guys. I exaggerate slightly. But it, it just, it, you know, I, I think we, we're, we're here because continuity. Continuity from from Brooklyn and from Manhattan to Queens, and continuity from our childhood to our adulthood, from last season to this season, and yet it, it, it does not feel as if the game is being conducted with any sense of continuity. Uh, and as much as we, I think we want to applaud progress and we want to advocate for things getting better and and not doing the same old things just because they are the same old things. You know, there was a time when the same old things kind of worked. And 
I don't know that it's been disproven that they stopped or, or that, that they that they don't work anymore, uh, or proven that they don't work anymore. So um, it it just feels sloppy, and it feels like well, you know, we have we have to take care of this inventory of games. I, I say that ironically because the inventory this year is in jeopardy. But most seasons, it just feels like we have to get 162 games in. It doesn't matter how long they take, no matter how many rain delays we sit through, how long the rain delays are, how many pitchers we, we have to throw out there. And, um, you know, it's it's not crisp as you, as, or as crisp as you'd like it to be. It's not as sharp as you'd like it to be. Sometimes it's good anyway. I, I wasn't complaining when Pete Alonso was homering last year. I wasn't complaining when Jeff McNeil was was finding ways to get on base. I wasn't complaining last night when the, when the Mets had a 10-5 lead, an 8-2 lead. But, uh, yeah, long view, if, if you're not already super invested in it, it's kind of tough to get excited about. You brought up Matt Adams, and um, ironically, he's not really an ex-Met. But last night, a major ex-Met, is what basically put the nail in the coffin. So, uh, you know, we're talking Sal Magley coming back to polo grounds uh, on the Dodgers. We're talking Casey Stengel coming back to Ebbets Field as, as, a, um, uh, as a John McGraw giant now. So, you know, and, and what, what is it about getting scorned by an ex? You know, you, you rooted for these guys. Uh, you rooted for Travis Darno in this case uh, for what? He was here from 2013 to 2019. Uh, he was here especially in 2015 when the contemporary Mets were at their best. Uh, Darno was a, a guy who Mets fans wanted to believe was the next full-time, long-time catcher following in the tradition of Jerry Grody and Gary Carter and Todd Hundley and Mike Piazza, and uh, I'll throw John Stearns in there somewhere. Uh, and then he's not, you know. Then you, and it's a you know, it's a tale as old as time. We, we could have been talking about Ike Davis a few years ago. Uh, boy, you know, we're we're in good shape. We've got Ike Davis for the next ten years, and you know, the ten years go by, and Ike Davis is gone, and he's not even playing. But I don't think Ike Davis ever really stuck it to the Mets like Travis Darno did last night, and confess that a small part of me was kind of happy for Travis Darno. Not not in the context of last night's game, but uh, certain guys, you know, I, I don't know that Travis Darno necessarily had to stay in Met, that it was a terrible mistake I, last May when they let him go. I don't remember thinking, how could you let Travis Darno go? It just felt like this was change of scenery time for him and time to move on for us. But, you know, when you, when you see a catcher face somebody he used to catch, especially with the game on the line. I don't know how I, I don't know how catchers don't hit about nine eighty in that situation because he has to know what Cephalugo is thinking. And he did, I guess, or at least he he correctly uh, guessed and uh, made good use of it for him. Uh you know, there's listen, there are some X Mets or X whoever is that you're not going to feel all that excited for. I mean, I don't really care that Matt Adams was in spring training with the Mets or summer training with the Mets, and and now he's a brave. I don't have a lot of sentimentality there. 
I understand why Adani Echeverria might feel scorned, but when the Mets let him go, so they'd have to pay him a larger bonus, and he wants to take it on that pitching for the rest of his life. But I wasn't all that attached to Adani Echeverria. Uh, it's, I guess it depends on the circumstances. If this was the, the National League Championship Series and Travis Darno had done that, I would not feel good for him at all. Um, you know, sometimes you want to step back and look at these guys as human beings in the context of this field in which we know them. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think Darno left bad-mouthing the Mets or anything. So I can't feel absolutely scorned exactly. You know, there, there always seems to be kind of that, that rite of passage to the ex-Mets. Uh, Daryl Strawberry came back with the Dodgers, and you were a little bit conflicted. Uh, Lenny Dykstra came back with the Phillies before we fully fathomed what kind of person Lenny Dykstra was. And, you know, we're conflicted. <laughs> after a while, you know, after a while, even Tom Seaver was the opposing pitcher for the Reds, at least in, in my experience. I mean, he was always Tom Seaver, but it's like, okay, we've got to beat Seaver today. But the first time, it's like, hey, oh, can, my can God, I, there I he is. Cut off. That's a great – I'm sorry to cut you off right there, but that's a great point, though. To, to go on, this keeps happening, that the decision and, – and mind you, it's, it's not like it, it could have necessarily worked out for Travis Darno, but why doesn't it? Why doesn't it work out that you can keep Tom Seaver around? Why doesn't it work out that you can keep Matt no. Adams around even? You know, it's, 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 things, it's things of that nature. It also uh, talks to the, the way the organization is run. But we could say that about, you know, anybody at any moment where anything doesn't work out. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in 1973, down the stretch, where the Mets are making their remarkable run to win the division from last place. They play the Cardinals right after that, that famous series against the Pirates, the one with the ball off the wall and where they move over in a matter of days from fourth place to first place. Next on their schedule is the Cardinals. Who comes in with the Cardinals but Tommy Agee? Tommy Agee, who you don't think of as a Cardinal. Tommy Agee, who you think of as a Met. Tommy Agee, who was, you know, one of the, the great Mets of 1969 and was traded in a dopey way, <laughs> to, to use a technical phrase, uh, for Rich Childs, who, if nobody's ever heard of, there's a reason for that. Um, and there's Tommy Agee playing for the Cardinals. He hit, he hit a home run in that series, but the Mets won anyway, and the Mets went on to win. And as much as I love Tommy Agee, and I would have liked to have seen Tommy Agee remain a Met forever, uh, you know, the Mets moved on. Uh, sometimes you beat the guys who you had. Sometimes getting rid of them wasn't the worst thing in the world. And uh, Turk Wendell, you know, again, in the, an Uber met of his time, uh, the Nets traded him, and I wasn't too happy about it. The end of July of 2001, the very next day, they turned to the Phillies. They're, they're playing the Phillies at Shea Stadium. I'm at the game. He comes in in the ninth inning. Robin Ventura hits a home run off him to win the game. And at that moment, I don't really care that Turk Wendell isn't a Met anymore. I'm happy that we beat him. So I, I think you can pick and choose these things. Uh, yes, mm. there is at, – at, at, at a certain level, you don't want to trade Tom Seaver. You don't want to 
let Daryl Strawberry go, regardless of, of how things turned out. You'd like to believe that the absolute elite players of your organization, the guys who mean the most to the most people, will stay forever. You're thrilled that after 50-plus years of it not working out that way, that it worked out that way with David Wright. It would have been miserable to watch David Wright in any uniform except that of the Mets. It was miserable to watch any number of players not in a Mets uniform. It's nice when they were able to come back maybe a second time like Jose Reyes did, regardless of the circumstances that, that led that way. Uh, you know, I can't – I can't – with all due respect, I can't put, say, how do they let Tom Seaver go and how do they let Matt Adams go in the same category? <laughs> well, yeah, I can't, I'm sorry you know, to have that in the I, same I can't sense. Take what, I'm sorry to have I that in the same I can't take sense. the factors that, that came into play in 1977 <laughs> under a completely different ownership and management with we decided that we didn't have room on a 30-man roster for Matt Adams and then next week Matt Adams gets a few <laughs> base hits against us. You know, I mean, He's yeah, collecting I'm, a lot I'm, of I'm, hits I'm all for drawing lines. But I, I I can't draw that line. I mean, you know, we they they did they decided to get by without Matt Adams, and Matt Adams beat them. And well, what are you gonna do? <laughs> let let me go. But, let me go. Uh, with the, let me go. Let me go with the David Wright element to it, though. That even though we're we're very lucky that we never had to see him in another uniform. Um, unfortunately, there's still from an organizational level the way everything played out. There's still questions to be to be asked. Uh, um, you know, and the fact that he's still on the roster technically, I mean, in, in terms of money, even though they're getting the insurance yes. money. So he has not retired. Yes. Hubris. Hubris is one of those words you once used when describing the Mets on, on the documentary that you and I made together with this. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's interesting because you could say Walter O'Malley had hubris. But when you look at – when you really analyze what ended up happening, it worked out for him from the decision he personally made. So what, what is it about the, the – the, what, what, what do you think – basically like when Jeff Wilpon is seeing a game like that and in the context of what we were talking about with David Wright and the fact that his contract could not fulfill itself um, – and you have his father, you know, saying he's not a superstar in the papers a few years ago. What is it about this stuff that breaks down from a hubris level? The feeling, not only watching the Will Ponds and watching other sports franchise owners, watching other titans of capitalism, uh, if you want to call them that. I think there's a lot of hubris that comes with the territory of having a lot of money and thinking that, every decision you make is golden and not necessarily being swayed by good advice. And I, you know, where David Wright was concerned, you know, I'm not really sure what to infer about hubris from that situation. I mean, they, they, we didn't want him to leave. So they signed him to a long-term contract with the understanding, I think, that long-term contracts for players who were past 30, which Wright was at the time, are risky. Although to that point, other than missing time with what I don't think was considered like a chronic life-threatening or you know life-altering back injury in 2011, uh, 
I think the, the feeling was, well, you know, it's good. We're going to have David Wright around, and, you know, he's always pretty dependable. And, well, his back gave out. And after that, I'm not sure what, what you do with him because, listen, I had – I'm not David Wright. I'm not an athlete, but I went through a thing for a couple of days in May – or I think it was in May, uh, time uh, blurring it, blurring into itself in recent months, uh, where my back really hurt. And I just thought getting up off the couch hurt. And I just was thinking, I don't know how David Wright played with this. <laughs> he, went to, he went to St. Lucie and worked out with the idea that I'm going to take some at-bats today and play third base today. Um, you know, you could question how they... You know the machinations they went through with with Wright, the the best soldier they ever had to use, to use a uh, maybe yeah, an improper term, the most loyal soldier, true. the captain, all of that stuff, and that uh, they were ready to kind of like off him, <laughs> you know, or you know, not give him his due <laughs> well, so they could get the and, insurance and, uh, money. But that, uh, that, that's, that's that is something. Let me let me ask about that though, because Jeff Wilpon has been. Uh, uh, there's been some controversy about the way they handle injuries. And if we can go that direction. Yeah. There's definitely, uh, you know, and again, we may be more conscious of what the Mets do versus what other teams do. Cause this is the team we have our eyes on. I, th- I think there's a lot of magical thinking where injuries are concerned. And this organization is concerned that if we, simply don't acknowledge that this injury is serious, it won't be that serious. Uh, it, it's also maybe may the way a certain federal government has been handling a pandemic, uh, which, by the way, isn't too <laughs> healthy either. But uh, you know, the, the one thing I learned reading both Mike Piazza's autobiography and Pedro Martinez's autobiography, and those were two guys who didn't necessarily uh, – love each other either as as teammates or opponents they both have the same experience where they wanted to to rest up in in an essentially implication free game i don't like to say meaningless whether it was spring training whether it was late in the season and both cases jeff wilpon's like no you guys are stars you got to play your box office gold or whatever uh, how somehow in, in the course of you know a long season, having Mike Piazza on the field or Pedro Martinez on the field was going to be you know the determining factor of profit and loss. I'm not sure. So I think you know you go back to Ryan Church, and fortunately baseball has come I think a long way since they kind of brushed off concussions as just say hey, you know uh, walk it off and you'll be back in there tomorrow, and not not putting Ryan Church on the disabled list and said flying him around the country. Uh, basically putting him in the overhead compartment where his head could bob up and down. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's the sense of, well, you know, we're, we're paying these guys. We, we ought to be getting <laughs> getting our money's worth. And the fact that they may not be ready to do that, the players the, may not be ready to play. They need to heal longer. And, you know, we get impatient too. But, we, you know, that's, you know, in this case, that's not up to us. We may say, why why isn't Mike Piazza back? Why isn't Pedro Martinez back or whoever? And it's like, well, we can't have him until he's ready. And maybe the Mets just get as antsy as we do. And by the Mets, I mean Wilpon and whoever makes those decisions over over the years. Uh, One one hopes that they are learning from their mistakes. Again, 
you know, it's not like they're they're racing Jed, Jed Lowry out there right now. Jed Lowry is 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 the opposite of all of that. You can question why they would get a guy who it became clear was not physically able to play baseball very much for two years to a two-year contract, but, you know, that that's another issue. So, I mean, there, there is, I, I think to your larger point, I, th- I think there, there is a certain DNA that goes through an organization, whoever's running it, and that there, there is a, a sense that we get about these things, and we inevitably fall back on precedent or the, the old uh, saying, uh, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And then we'll, we'll, we'll put those, we'll put those pieces together. You know, I, I was on a, I was on my way to City Field a, a couple of September's ago. Uh, it was like the, the last Sunday of the home season, and got into a conversation with another Mets fan about all you know the, the it was all the awful trades the Mets make, and you know we we you know we hit all the greatest hits. And then this guy says to me, he's a little older than I am, he says to me, and they let Jim Hickman go. I said, Jim Hickman was like 50 years ago. <laughs> Jim Hickman had like basically one, one really good season with the Cubs, and, you know, the year before that we won the World Series. How, I, I don't know how much of this articulated. I articulated how much of it I just thought, but it was like, let Jim Hickman go already. <laughs> we can't. We, we we can't cobble together every grievance since 1962, and, and and layer on top of that everything that Walter O'Malley did or that Horace Stoneham did, and say uh, you know what was us? This keeps happening to us. You know we we, we are. The, well, I'll, I'll give you this: we are the keepers of the flame in, in that regard, and and we are the ones who are going to remember. And sometimes I think it would be helpful if you had a Mets fan with a long memory hanging around the front office, <laughs> stopping by once every yeah. homestand when, when you could enter <laughs> well and just said. say, Hey guys, you might want to know that this happened before. And uh, I, I think you're, you're going to be undermining people's confidence if you do that, or you might want, I know, I know you guys have, have all the resources at your fingertips and I'm just some dopey fan, but you might want to know that this happened once and you might want to double check. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> I just want to throw this in. Um, we as fans, I, th- I think we sometimes do kind of default to not only, not so much worst-case scenarios, but, but sort of deciding that whatever went wrong in a given instance is what we choose to remember. I, I've been thinking about this because at Faith and Fear, my partner Jason Fry and I have been running a series, and we, we started – Back in April when we didn't know if there was going to be any baseball, so we had to write about something. We called it a, a Met for All Seasons. And it's simply, we, we pick one Met who played in a given year. He didn't necessarily play only in that year. And we, we write about it, whether through the prism of, you know, biography or through the prism of that season. And it's it's been, you know, we, we, we take turns. And it's been kind of revealing for me to, to take part in this. Because I, I think it, it's kind of veered me away from just wanting to lean on what went wrong in a given career or a given era. Uh, the most recent one I wrote was about Daryl Strawberry, specifically 1983, the year he came up as the, in my mind, the greatest hope 
we ever had for a homegrown ball player, that there was never anybody who we invested more hope in from the moment he was, not only from the moment he was drafted number one in the nation, but from the moment there was a little article about him in Sports Illustrated saying this guy could be the number one pick in the nation. And I knew the Mets had the number one pick and please pick Daryl Strawberry. And once they did and once they signed him, it's like, please get Daryl Strawberry up here as fast as you can. And it was just kind of a, a guiding principle of Mets fandom from 1980 until the moment he arrived in 1983. And, Often when you talk about Daryl Strawberry and often when you talk about, say, Dwight Gooden or later on when you talk about the pitchers who made up what we call Generation K, like Jason Isringhausen and Bill Pulsifer, especially Jason Isringhausen because he had a longer career, or when you talk about, I don't know, Ike Davis, I brought him up before. Um, We just tend to kind of lean on, oh, man, that didn't work out. Even Strawberry, the, the greatest home run hitter in Mets history, at least until Pete Alonso gets a few more seasons under his belt, Knockwood. We say, oh, you know, he could have been so much better. He could have gone to the Hall of Fame. We should have had so many more world championships. Dwight Gooden could have won so many more games. Uh, Jason Isringhausen uh, could be a 1969 Mets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah, Jim Hickman could have been there. Ron Hunt could have stayed. Uh, you know, you could just do this all, all day long. And I think what, what, what I've enjoyed doing from writing this series is, you know what, I, I enjoy remembering the things that went well, that Daryl Strawberry did hit 252 home runs, and he did contribute to a, a world championship that we revisit constantly, maybe because there hasn't been one since then, but because it was so incredible. And instead, instead of just leaning on, uh, look, look where Generation K, Generation K didn't work out. I just, I, I, I like to freeze that moment in 1995 where he did come up, and it was the biggest thing in the world, perhaps the biggest thing since Daryl Strawberry. And look, look how good that season ended, and look at how much hope we had. Yeah, you know, it, it didn't work out for Israel House in New York, but he had a very good career, and in a couple of years, the Mets were a winning team again. I, I don't know. I, I just. I understand the impulse when the team isn't doing well and when the team hasn't won a World Series for so long to say, oh, they just keep doing the same things over and over again. It doesn't work out. But within the scope of things not working out, even within the scope of an 11 damn loss, uh, and I realize that there's a, there's a degree of otherwise how did you enjoy the play, Mrs. Lincoln, to that kind of thinking. But you know what? Cano did get three hits last night. It was fun. I'm going to remember watching Robinson Cano, like I was saying before, be that professional hitter. I'm going to remember Andres Jimenez breaking in. Even if this turns out to be a truncated, terrible, lead-blowing type of mini-season, I'm going to remember a few things, just like I do from every season. And I'm not saying, hey, just put on the rose-colored glasses or the Howie rose-colored glasses and, and say everything's great <laughs> and be a shill for the Wilpons. But I'm saying, you know what? There's a reason we keep coming back to it. It's not just to, to flagellate ourselves. And I don't think it's the reason people stuck around at the intersection of Bedford and Sullivan from 1937 to 1957, especially before 1941 when there hadn't been any success. I, I think there is a sense of, you know, there's, there's something good here. And we want to build on it, and we want to have more of it. We want to remember the good parts of it, and and create those memories, and then be subject to those memories as they are as they are present day. Uh, whether whether you were a Dodger fan, whether you were a Giant fan, or wh- whether you are a Mets fan, so uh, you know there, there there's something good here, 
I, I think that's why, uh, you know, you, you're happy to sit and talk about baseball for an hour in the middle of everything else going on in the world, not not, not just to beat ourselves up, but to, to elevate ourselves a little. So, uh, you know, exactly. yeah, the Wilpons make mistakes. The Mets lose games. They blow leads. <laughs> but somehow it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and it's funny because, like, I don't think you could compare Jason Bay to Pete Reeser uh, outside of – the two ran into a, a, a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons uh, we, you know, I think Jason Bay's Mets career uh, went awry, but um, I, I, it, it's so many, so many places, you know, it's, it, I, I <laughs> where, where to go next uh, exactly um, before we, uh, we wrap up on, on this edition of uh, Bedford and Sullivan. It, it's, I, Oh, I just I just had something else uh, based off of what you were talking about that that other than Jason Bay and Pete Reeser, <laughs> and I just based on it. Uh, um, so I I guess the the best direction to go with that is is like you said, like you, you know, it's like Jeff Wilpon's not going to organize this team uh, properly, but you know you're going to keep watching and and watching these guys. It's funny because I I I'm pulling up a, an article about Jim Hickman. I didn't know much about Jim Hickman. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and it was it's fun that that I, I uh, pulled up a mesmerized uh, old time Mets the underappreciated Jim, Jim Hickman, and I look forward to reading this at some point. But it, it's oh, oh I I'm remembering exactly where I wanted to go. And, and Greg, you may or may not know this this answer, but when the Mets were incepted, did they need to get permission from the Giants to use the interlocking NY? Sure. I somehow don't think so, because I don't. I don't think that was. I, that I don't was know thing. what copyright and trademark laws were back then. Right. Do you know the answer? You're just ask, asking me. No, no. I was just asking because I was looking at uh, on I've, the old time. I've never, at... I've never heard it brought up. I mean, I've. I, I remember. I remember reading somewhere along the way that there was actually an issue of what constituted National League territory versus American League territory within the five boroughs that the Yankees try, tried to uh, claim that uh, somehow they planted the flag in the name of Queen Isabella and Jacob Rupert and uh, nobody else could come in. But, um, and no, 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 Queens like Brooklyn is, is nationally territory and Manhattan is neutral territory, but the Bronx and stuff, I don't remember exactly what, what the, uh, the parameters were there. So I know a lot of things had to be worked out in kind of arcane detail that we wouldn't recognize and certainly they had to get uh, you know the, the giants still held the the lease on the polo grounds uh even though they had left town so you know all kinds of things had to be arranged and signed off on by people you wouldn't think had a say but the ny that's that's a very good question but i just don't mm. think so i think it was just no. kind of sitting there up for grabs at that point what's interesting is that there there's a writer david krell who's been on the show uh, he's written about the Brooklyn Dodgers in pop culture, and he's writing a book about the Mets in pop culture. And and he's also done research on the Brooklyn Dodgers. I believe is a restaurant. Uh, the Dodgers sued them, uh, and and basically the, the the court said that you don't really you vacated the right to the Brooklyn Dodgers property. Yeah, I, re- um, I remember so that story from the eighties. Yeah, yeah, he may know. He may uh, be able to help us with this information. And so I will reach out to him because <laughs> he also tweeted at us before we went on the show. So yeah, uh, certainly radar one way or another. 
So yeah, yeah I just I, I just I just don't yeah, I just don't think it was that. I, I think today you would have a hard time just picking up say the 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 M that the Montreal Expos used and and using it in uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma for your for your new team. But uh, I I just don't think that was the case. And if you remember, if you if you looked at you know, old football giant uniforms, they use that NY. Uh, you've seen the NYs from both the Giants and the Yankees show up on Nick uniforms, I think, uh, over the years. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know that we can... And that's a great question, too, about the, the shorts. I mean, uh, uh, is, did, did the Yankees eventually... Because when the Knicks started using that, it was most likely at the point that intellectual property rights were, were very... Uh, uh, written, and that's a good question. To, <laughs> I guess I opened a can of worms here. Yeah, this was typography mostly, so I, I don't know to what extent these things were were copyrighted, trademarked, patented, whatever the phrase would be. And these things just just seem to be looser in those days. I don't think in 1958, I don't think the Giants were concerned. The San Francisco Giants were concerned with selling throwback merchandise. I, I don't think there was really any sense of, well, you know, we want to play off this New York thing. It's like they were in San Francisco. Uh, go, go, go have a nice time in New York without us. It's a very good point, and I think that's a good way of segueing to our last word, as we always say. Uh, Greg, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And before giving us your last word, uh, please go ahead with your shameless plug. Uh, my only shameless plug at the moment is faithandfearandflushing.com, uh, where we are reviewing the 2020 season as it happens. Uh, once we get off the phone, I will uh, shortly be posting uh, about last night's wonderful game, and, and we continue the uh, A Met for All Season series, uh, which we are officially halfway through. Uh, 60 seasons, including 2021, and uh, I, I thought I thought it was appropriate. Yesterday, uh, Jason posted uh, for 2001, Mike Piazza, and I was thinking, like, who who would you rather go to intermission with than somebody you can imagine belting out a showstopper uh, to bring the curtain down and uh, to get you excited about what comes next? So uh, that, that's been a lot of fun, and I hope people who are of a uh, historical mindset about National League Baseball in New York, particularly the Mets, um, will uh, kind of go, go back and look if they haven't. Uh, so, uh, you know, right now, uh, in the course of uh, this uh, Knockwood 2020 season, uh, that's what we've got going on with Faith and Fear. And hopefully we keep watching some baseball and, and you know, uh, safe. Uh, I hope your family is safe and healthy. And I hope we all get to keep watching baseball right now and that, that baseball figures out how to be safe and healthy. And uh, yeah. thank you all out there. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I thank you all out there for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We greatly appreciate every single one of your listens. Uh, join us on Monday when, uh, remarkably, we're going to have Frank Thomas and Carl Erskine on the same podcast. It's going to be a fun time. You should have heard them on the phone the other day when I, I, I was able to conference them in, it was a joy to me <laughs> and I can't wait to share it with all of you. Thank you all. Fantastic. Have a great week. Take care. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Sam. This was fun.